Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. researcher in this area who he was a night person a serious night person and his wife was a serious morning person he used to say they used to meet for breakfast I mean sexual relations obviously the social factors are important as to what time you can do it it tends to be a maximum of about roughly about 11 12 o'clock at night but that's normally because that's when people go to, you know go to bed um the best time probably is relatively early in the morning in terms of your rhythmic activity but there's all sorts of reasons people got to go to work and all that sort of thing but yes if you've got a a morning person who's married to a night person and they're got very, very different, if you like, time schedules, that can be quite tricky to manage. What is the impact of jet lag and night work on psychological and physical health? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the mysterious world of the potty clock with author, biologist and broadcaster Dr. Leon Kreisman, whose latest book, Circadian Rhythms, has just been published by Oxford University Press. And ask whether the modern world lacks clear 24-hour patterns. In Circadian Rhythms, Dr. Leon Kreisman argues, life is a continual battle to stay in a non-equilibrium energy state. Being forced to live against one's circadian clock has metabolic consequences. So what are circadian rhythms? How important is meal timing on the circadian network? And what are their impact on disorders such as schizophrenia, insomnia and obesity? Hello, my name's Leon Kreitzman. About 20 years ago, I wrote a book called The 24-Hour Society, which was all about the way in which we were extending our time, working later into the night and blurring the distinction between weekdays and weekends. In it, I wrote a chapter about the effect it had on our biology if you work later, work nights, did shift work. And in order to help me do that, I contacted somebody called Russell Foster, who was then at Imperial College, and he helped me write that chapter. Since then, Russell and I, and he's now a professor at Oxford in what's grandly called circadian neuroscience, have written three books. One was called Rhythms of Life, which was again about circadian rhythms. One was called Seasons of Life, which was about the seasonal changes that occur in plants and animals each year. And we've just done something called a very short introduction to circadian rhythms, which is a quick but quite uh, comprehensive insight into what's going on into circadian rhythm research and how it's affecting sleep patterns, metabolism, and particularly mental health issues in people. That's the sort of new area that the research is going into. Really well done on the book, Leon. Um, It's a fascinating read, I have to say. I learned so much. I didn't realise just how ignorant I was on these topics. And circadian rhythms, it seems, pervade every aspect of life and every living thing. So hats off to you uh, for putting together such a comprehensive, as you say, and detailed book. I might start off with a big wide open question, if that's okay. Is science all about perseverance? And will in that a little bit of optimism too? There's an awful 
awful lot of perseverance, years and years of it usually, before they can actually come up with substantial discoveries that are affecting the way the world works. Occasionally, very occasionally, somebody does something and it works first time and it's brilliant and they get all the plaudits. But that's very, very occasional. It's a bit like some of the criticisms of some, some operas. You know, some wonderful moments of, of, of music and singing and an awful lot of boredom in between. That's really what science is like. Every day, flogging away at the laboratory bench, trying to make sure that this is right and that is right and changing that reagent and slightly adjusting one of the dials and things like that. And that goes on for a very long time before they actually come up with results. To what extent, Leon, is the 24-7 economy in conflict with our basic biology? And what I mean by that is that how we're living these days in these uh, such fast-paced, long, uh, long days that we've almost lost touch with our sense of inner time. Yes, you must recall that it was, it's only in the last hundred-odd years or so that we've really switched from being agricultural people. Most people spent most of their lives outdoors. What happened, of course, was the Industrial Revolution, and they all started to move into factories, which were quite dark and dingy. About 120-odd years ago, they did the electric lamp, which looks bright to us. But actually, if you were to go outside on a bright, sunny day, as it is here in London, for example, you're looking at a light level getting on for probably a thousand times more than it is inside in the house that I live in. That's the sort of difference. That's how strong the external light signal was. And we've, to a large extent, given that up. There are people, older people in particular, who don't go out much, who might, if they're lucky, get an hour or two's exposure to sunlight a week. The rest of us may well start work, go to work in the dark, come home when it's already dark, and not really see much sunlight except perhaps at weekends. And the problem is that sunlight is the single most important factor in regulating our daily lives. Because if you think about it, one of the fundamental aspects of the world we live in is that every day the Earth rotates on its axis. It now takes nearly 24 hours, give or take a couple of minutes. And that means that every day we have a day and we have a night. We have a dawn and we have a dusk. And that's an incredibly strong signal. Living organisms, not humans, but since life began, there's probably been a trillion dawns and dusks. And that's a signal because with the day and the night comes changes, obviously, in light levels. It's dark changes in temperature, changes in rainfall, and they're all predictable. They all happen, and they keep repeating day after day, year after year. And that has an important effect on living organisms. And it's particularly true now with human organisms because we're not meant to be night workers. We're day people. So if we work night and work continually at night, Our body rhythms, our basic rhythms, never adjust. So what happens is that we're trying to sleep in the day when all the body activities are trying to keep us alert and work in the night when actually our body is telling us, go to sleep, go to sleep. 
So that's the basic problem that's now starting to manifest itself in all sorts of physical conditions and mental conditions. So what we call human progress is really shooting us in the foot because it's really interfering with our natural mojo when you think about it. Yeah, we're not managing the process. This is the problem. You can do things. You can have shift work schedules that are more amenable to the body rhythms than just doing, you know, a week of days, a week of nights, a week of days, a week of nights sort of thing, which are really quite destructive. We can do all sorts of things. And as long as people know and understand, they can minimize the damage that's being done and ameliorate the damage. But at the moment... We're not managing it at all. I mean, most broadcast organizations, like, for example, your own radio, a 24-hour news operation in it, they do very little for the staff to actually help them. So, for example, we're not meant to digest fatty foods during the night. So one thing you don't want to do if you're working nights is to eat fried foods. You want to eat really, really light foods. But people have to know that before they can do anything about it. And all organizations are really bad at, at, at trying to do this. And particularly, you know, the, the process industries where they're working all the time, steel industry, all the extractive industries, the media industries, financial services, which now tend to work a little bit round the clock, all sorts of organizations simply don't take the needs of the employees to heart. And that's the critical problem now. You write in your introductions, Leon, that you were guided by the mantra, if you want to understand calculus, you have to show the equations. It's a very robust advice, but I'm wondering, how do you explain, I suppose, the, the, the natural body clock yeah. in, in, in reference to that? Yeah, you're right. And one of the the issues with some of the books, it's difficult to explain what's going on at the molecular level unless people have got a little bit of a biological understanding. But what we have to explain to other people, most people nowadays know what jet lag is like because, you know, a large percentage of the population have been on on a long-distance flight. And when you go on a long-distance flight, your body rhythms, your internal rhythms, get out of sync with the situation you're going to. So if, for example, you fly to Australia, which is about 10 time zones distant, it actually takes your body clock about 10 days, an hour for each time zone, to get into the local time. So for about 10 days, you feel, I suppose the only word is discombobulated. It affects different people differently. Some people get quite severe lethargy, they're not functioning, their mind's not working terribly well. Others go through without too much problem. But even super fit athletes who go to the Olympic Games and might spend um, six, eight hours in the air, it takes them a good fortnight to recover and to be back to their top, back to their peak. And that's what this discombobulation does. It doesn't make you immediately ill, but it does affect your performance in ways you probably don't even notice, but it is affecting you, and it can have long-term damaging effects. And what we have to try and do is get the doctors to appreciate that there's 
circadian rhythm dysfunctions. It can have an effect. We have to have the schools. You see, teenagers have got a body clock, which is not quite that the same as those of older people. If you ask a teenager to get up at, say, seven in the morning to get ready for school, that's the same as asking a 50-year-old to get up at five o'clock in the morning. So that's, that's the sort of situation. That's the effect it has. Nothing's working quite rightly if you're out of sync. Now, there are some people, obviously, who are morning people. They're much more functional in the morning, and they go to bed earlier. And there are some people who are night people who tend to go to bed later and function better at night. But the vast majority are in between. And if they're working at jobs which don't really fit their own particular body clocks, it's like square pegs in round holes. Only we're talking about time in this particular instance. And that's the issue. And as I said, it can be managed, but it has to be carefully managed. So, for example, if you looked at how we function around the 24-hour period, we're more alert at certain times than we are at others. That's obvious. We sleep at night. We're awake during the day in the main. But all sorts of other changes are going on with our hormones. The levels are increasing and decreasing. Our mental functioning is changing during the time. Our athletic performance changes. Most people, for example, are more supple, more flexible during the evening. So if you want to exercise, you really probably should do it late afternoon, evening, not first thing in the morning. Stuff like that is going on, and it covers everything, you know, what time women ovulate, what time people's digestion is working. We know these changes because during the day, we get hungry. During the night, we go to sleep for eight hours. We don't get hungry. Something's switching on and switching off. And that's a time process going on all around the 24 hours. And when you think, Leon, if, you know, you're a high-profile business executive who's doing a lot of foreign travel, whether you're flying through time zones or if you're a, a, a big-time sports person, you may have a very hectic schedule. So over that, you may survive that for a year or two, but it may be over 10 years. It has a huge effect on performance, doesn't it? A huge effect. I mean, for example, long-haul jet pilots are permanently jet-lagged, and that's not good, but that's the situation that is. As you say, the business executives, some of them who try and pretend, you know, they don't change their watch, they keep the time at the, their home base time and go through, you know, they think that they're okay, but actually their performance, if you were to measure it, and this has been done, if you measure it, it's declined. Declines depending on how hectic and how often you're doing all this transatlantic hopping and all the rest of it. And they might end up making bad decisions. And in fact, the famous one was a man called John Foster Dulles, who was the Secretary of State for the United States in the mid-1950s. And it was when the Egyptians wanted to build the Aswan Dam, and they were looking for finance. And the Russians were interested in financing them because it would give them an entry into Africa. And Dulles flew to Egypt. There was a military jet. There weren't even commercial jets yet on a military jet. And he had discussions and what have you. And it all went sour. It went wrong. And he flew back. And he then 
decided that it was fatigue. It wasn't fatigue. He'd been jet-lagged, and that led him to make poor decisions. And after that, the Secretary of State, as he was, there was an edict went out that no U.S. foreign official could enter into negotiations or anything like that until they'd spent at least two days recovering from their, their trip. Just wondering, Leon, how do circadian rhythms affect medical treatment? 